Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. This week, in advance of World Cancer Day, we sat down for a conversation with Megan Gutierrez, the Chief Executive Officer of the Lymphoma Research Foundation, about how the pandemic has affected patients' lives with lymphoma, particularly as it pertains to financial toxicity and the choices that families have to make. Coincidentally, President Biden announced a restart of the Cancer Moonshot, an initiative that he launched when he was part of the Obama administration. It aims to cut cancer deaths over the next quarter century and increase prevention, screening, and tackle inequities. We discuss all of that on this episode of Managed Carecast. Welcome to Manage Carecast, uh, Ms. Gutierrez. Well, thank you for having us. Can you tell me a little bit uh, to start out about the Lymphoma Research Foundation and what you focus on? Absolutely. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit organization devoted exclusively to funding innovative lymphoma research and then serving the lymphoma community through expert education programs, outreach initiatives, and support services. Our mission at LRF is to eradicate lymphoma and serve those touched by this disease. So we're talking uh, today on a day when President Biden announced the return of the cancer moonshot program. Uh, What is your reaction? It's certainly very exciting and I think fitting that the president would want to reignite his longstanding commitment to cancer research ahead of World Cancer Awareness Day. I read this morning that one of the goals he'll be announcing is to reduce the death rate from cancer by at least 50% over the next 25 years, as well as improving the experience of people who receive a cancer diagnosis. And we're, of course, supportive of this effort as we were when the Moonshot Initiative was first launched, and we appreciate his leadership on this issue, which, like so many of us, stems from a personal experience with cancer. Um, In order to achieve these goals, I think it's important to highlight that we're going to need to see significant and sustainable federal investment in cancer research and patient care, not only at the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, but also in new initiatives like the proposed ARPA-H program, which is based on a program uh, originated at the Department of Defense, I think as well as efforts that would create greater collaboration between public and private organizations like the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I think it's been established and we know that no one person or entity or even country will cure cancer. And so seeding that collaboration, I think will be critical across the entire cancer research enterprise. The announcement did not call out the cost of cancer specifically. I looked at the fact sheet. He did make Mm -hmm. a reference to financial burdens How is what you call financial toxicity in cancer different for people with lymphoma? Certainly. So, you know, obviously financial toxicity is a significant issue across the across the cancer enterprise. And every year, unfortunately, millions of people who are diagnosed impact uh, are impacted by the financial hardship that that accompanies their diagnosis at a time when they're most vulnerable and in need. I think lymphoma patients in particular, um, because of the indolent or slow growing nature of many types of lymphoma, um, maybe in and out 
out of treatment for the rest of their lives. Today, we have no curative treatments, but many patients receive multiple lines of therapy over years, if not decades. And in receiving multiple treatments, some of which are incredibly expensive, the out-of-pocket burden for patients is, is very dear. And I'll say, I think a lot of these issues have been compounded by the pandemic. Since the pandemic began, so call it March 2020, we've witnessed a significant shift at LRF in patient outreach. Requests for financial assistance, as an example, represented more than 50% of the first-time callers to the LRF helpline. We also typically receive in any given year a few hundred first-time applications for our modest patient aid grant program, but in 2020, we received over 1,000 first-time new requests for financial aid, and we think that that's indicative not only of increasing out-of-pocket costs that patients are responsible for for their cancer treatment, but also indicators of the impact of the pandemic and the financial and economic uncertainty we all face. President Biden's fact sheet talked about the immense progress that has been made since the moonshot was announced when he was vice president in the Obama administration, like, you know, mm. immunotherapies, CAR-T, all of that. And all of that adds up now to a lifetime cost of a million, two million. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I feel like research is still figuring this out. How much does insurance design play a role in this? And what do you want payers and insurers to know? Well, I think our goal at LRF is always that the right patient receives the right treatment at the right time. And I think as scientific discovery evolves and new, more efficacious treatments become available that very often reduce the treatment-related side effects that patients can carry with them for the rest of their lives, it's really important to ensure that patients have access to the care that best treats their cancer and are recommended by their physician. And I think if that's the premise we work under, we also need to make certain that um, patients have access when it comes to what they can afford and what's available to them. I think we also need to make sure that insurance and benefit design keep pace with the way in which cancer is treated. So to offer you an example from the lymphoma space, you know, there are new oral oncolytics that have become available over the last decade for certain types of this blood cancer. And some of them are targeted therapies, incredibly efficacious, extending lives. Because they're oral therapies, however, um, they're often paid for commercially out of a patient's pharmacy benefit rather than their medical benefit as a prototypical IV infusion chemotherapy would for a patient. And this exposes, because we're not typically used to treating cancer through a prescription-based therapy, it often can expose some patients to incredibly high out-of-pocket out of cost-sharing. And so I think this is just one example where we need to make sure benefit design in the entire system keeps pace with scientific discovery so that patients aren't left out of experiencing and benefiting from these new discoveries and the new innovations um, that we hope someday will cure their disease. Speaking of the pandemic, which you referenced earlier, various surveys have uh, indicated that most Americans don't have enough money in their accounts to pay for an emergency like a car breakdown or a trip to the ER mm -hmm. for a broken leg or something. How does that come into play for most Americans when you add a cancer diagnosis on top of it? 
I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's something um, that we're seeing it to an increasing degree at the Lymphoma Research Foundation. In fact, cancer survivors typically report higher out-of-pocket spending than people who have not had cancer across the health enterprise. And some cancer survivors actually report spending more than 20% of their annual income on medical care. So when you think about the impact on someone's household, if 20% of their income is being spent on medical care, it obviously is an important contributing factor to the financial toxicity we were describing earlier. I think it also explains why, um, you know, particularly during the pandemic and when you think about the overall impact on the economy, on employment, we've seen an increase in patients calling the Lymphoma Research Foundation because of the job loss of their household's primary caregiver, who's also the main breadwinner of the household, who might be the primary carrier of healthcare coverage for the family. And so this creates downstream challenges for covering the cost of basic living expenses like rent and food, in addition to treatment related expenses. And one of the things I find most heartbreaking in, in speaking with patients who are reaching out for financial counseling and assistance to our organization are those who are put in the untenable position of deciding between investment in, in their cancer care and day-to-day -day household expenses for their family. I don't think that's a position any patient should ever have to be placed in. And the age at which people get diagnosed with lymphomas and other blood cancers, when they're hit with this, it affects their retirement plans or what they've already saved. Can you discuss the impact on that and quality of life? Absolutely. So when you think about the overall household impact for someone who might be nearer to retirement, it obviously impacts the way they plan for their future. And they too are placed in incredibly challenging positions. You know, there are some people who need to think about the advent of Medicare and what changing from a commercial insurance plan to Medicare may mean in terms of implication for their treatment and treatment planning. As I mentioned earlier, many people with lymphoma will be in and out in treatment of, for the remainder of their lives. And so increasingly, some patients are thinking about when they might move to become Medicare beneficiaries and the impact that might have on treatment selection and sequencing. And so I think it's becoming increasingly challenging and intricate and, and patients really do have to advocate for themselves when they're thinking about their long-term planning for their overall well-being as well as their cancer care. I think it's also important to not overlook the fact in, in our space, lymphoma is one of the most common cancer diagnoses among adolescents and young adults. And so from their perspective, we often um, hear about the disruption to academics, to the ability to enter the workforce, about discriminatory practices in terms of those with pre-existing medical conditions and, and the fact that a cancer diagnosis, even if someone is cured, may lead to increased healthcare utilization later because of secondary malignancies or long-term treatment side effects. And so even in those individuals who are diagnosed with cancer at an earlier age, there are long-term economic, financial, and health ramifications of their diagnosis. How do younger people diagnosed with lymphomas wind up adjusting their career plans or maybe their plans to have a family or that sort of thing? 
you know, for some, uh, for some younger patients, it disrupts their academic career. And so they might have to take a leave of absence from high school or college, depending on where they are in their academic trajectory, which can put them behind their peers to the extent that they've already taken out uh, loans to underwrite the expenses associated with their academics often comes into play as they're thinking about their economic and financial future. Um, for those who are disrupting entering the workforce, that too can be a challenge, um, particularly if they're going to be in and out of treatment or in a cycle of treatment for an extended period of time. Explaining that to a prospective employer can be incredibly challenging for these patients. I think, too, the fact that you know, many patients um, who are in this AYA age range, which is typically as defined by the National Cancer Institute between the ages of 15 and 40, you brought up fertility and family planning, you know, that uh, can bring significant additional expenses associated with it to preserve one's fertility ahead of cancer treatment. As you also think about potentially young cancer patients who have started a family, you know, and the implications economically of caring for their family while also undergoing treatment and potentially having to delay or step out of the workforce. So there are numerous challenges that I think contribute to the unique circumstances of adolescents and young adults who have been um, diagnosed with cancer. And in fact, this is such a pressing issue. The Lymphoma Research Foundation created an entire scientific consortium specifically focused on the unique challenges faced by adolescents and young adults facing a lymphoma diagnosis, where we bring together North America's greatest experts in AYA lymphomas to not only talk about and discuss new findings for the disease itself, but also to extend those conversations into clinical care, access to care, disparities in care, which we know unfortunately exist even within the confines of oncology, and then also to talk about long-term survival and very unique challenges faced by this patient population. What are some of the health disparities in lymphomas? We know they exist in, in cancer overall and really in every disease but what is specific to the lymphoma part of it? Absolutely. So I think um, a great place to start is to think about some of, you know, the very basic social determinants of health that we know, to, as you pointed out, impact um, the whole of oncology. And so when we think about where people, you know, where they're born, where they live, where they work, play, worship, um, their age and ethnicity, it affects a wide range of health functioning and outcomes when it comes to oncology and lymphoma is no different. So we've discussed at great length economic stability, which is an important social determinant of health and within lymphoma and the AYA lymphomas where we've spoke about, there's emerging research that demonstrate outcomes differ by some of these demographics, which is unfortunate considering that one of the lymphoma subtypes most prominent among this age group is Hodgkin lymphoma, um, where the vast majority of patients can actually be cured of their disease. So to see disparities there um, is, is quite frankly shocking and heartbreaking. I think one other factor that disproportionately impacts younger patients with cancer and in the lymphoma space in particular are education, and access to that education, medically accurate disease-specific information. We know that a patient um, who's well-educated can advocate for themselves. And so access to quality 
education and information from experts is something that we've prioritized at the Lymphoma Research Foundation as a part of our education portfolio, but also as part of a health equity uh, program that we launched several years ago. I think social and community context and support as well, um, not only is relevant to AYAs with lymphoma, but across our entire patient population and is also a, an important social determinant of health. So when we think about multi-generational care giving as one example. You know, that's something new that we're encountering to make sure and think about the fact that a patient might have parents or siblings as well as children or others caring for them and that they in turn have a responsibility for. So really thinking about that full societal and family unit and the implications that it might have on a patient's cancer care. Are there any advocacy efforts that you want to discuss that uh, your organization is doing around the cost of care and bringing that down for people. Absolutely. So the Lymphoma Research Foundation continually prioritize quality access to cancer care for every patient. And we're supportive of a number of policy initiatives that would move that forward. I think when we think about access, two things that come to mind that we're working toward are thinking about healthcare access and, and what it means in returns of telemedicine and remote healthcare technologies and how they might be able to be used to provide proactive cancer care and to be able to respond to patients' immediate questions and actively prioritize patients who require urgent care. Um, this has come to light, obviously, in the course of the pandemic, but I think there have been some critical lessons learned here. And so we would love to see um, some of the policies that were put in place as uh, kind of emergency use during the pandemic, we'd love to think through from a policy perspective what we might be able to do to make some of those offerings more permanent. Because what we saw at the Lymphoma Research Foundation was it opened access to lymphoma experts, to patients from traditionally underserved communities uh, who maybe typically wouldn't have made a trip to a tertiary care center to receive a consultation from a lymphoma expert. We also know that there are certain communities where ready, ready access to a healthcare provider is made more challenging because of their inability um, to get time off from work and travel to an appointment. Um, here, telemedicine has proven that um, you can more efficiently meet with experts that might specialize in your particular type of cancer. I think the other thing that we've witnessed and is also an advocacy priority for our organization is to think about diversity within the context of cancer clinical trials. We know that this often offer is an important treatment option for patients. We know it moves the needle forward in terms of the establishment and identification of new, more efficacious treatments. And we need greater numbers of individuals and greater diversity of individuals to participate in these trials. During the course of the pandemic, we saw uh, more remote access become available to patients. Um, maybe they didn't need to travel to that tertiary care center in their state for scans or lab work. They were able to have medications delivered to them in their home while they participate in a clinical trial. So I think if we can take some of these silver linings and some of the key learnings um, that we were forced uh, to utilize during the course of the pandemic. We'd love to see those push through into the future to make quality cancer care more readily available to more Americans and lymphoma patients in particular. Is there anything else that you want to add that I forgot to ask? 
You know, I, I think I would just mention, and I appreciate, you know, your your perspective and your focus on financial toxicity and the and the financial burden that so many people with lymphoma face when they're diagnosed with this disease. I'd be remiss if I if I didn't say again that LRF has its own patient aid grant program that assists patients who are currently in active treatment who might need that financial assistance. Um, last year, we were able to provide more than 650 of these grants to patients and their caregivers, and 100% of this program is funded privately by individuals and foundations who want to pay it forward. And this month, in the month of February, um, Valentine's Day, as well as World Cancer Awareness Day, we're going to be launching our Show Your Love campaign, which raises funds to support the program and patients during this critical time of need, something we've discussed today. So I just thought I would mention that throughout the month of February, people can donate through the campaign and learn more about the program, certainly if they find themselves in need. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, we really appreciate it. And this is just such Absolutely. an important topic. I agree. Thank you for shining a light on it. We'll look okay. forward to future conversations. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, go to AJMC.com. And if you like the podcast, follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal.